Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Signal from Jano Media. This week, I'm going to be talking to Sean Campbell, who runs the Arthur Wharton Foundation in Darlington. Sean came into our orbit after a film about the foundation featured in our newsletter, Content Ed, which is a helpful weekly digest we put out, uh, assisting you in discovering cool new content that's good for your soul. Sean and I talk about Arthur Wharton, the man himself, the ripple effects of producing content responsibly, and about a few more exciting projects Sean has got in the pipeline. So there'll be links to everything that's discussed in the show notes. Enjoy. Yeah, I mean, I'll try to go easy on you. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. First of all, hi, Sean Campbell. Welcome to Signal. Thanks for having me, Sassy. It's absolutely wonderful to be on here today. I'm looking forward to seeing what you've got on offer in terms of your questioning. <laughs> me too. We'll see how it goes. Um, so rather than tell us about the Arthur Wharton Foundation, because we'll include a bit of that information in the show notes for the episode, and I'm sure it will come out as we chat, but I'm interested in why the Arthur Wharton story got under your skin to the degree it did, because I, I, I don't think obsession is too strong a word here um I, my wife uses that word and other people might use that word i don't see that as the appropriate word for me in terms of it being an obsession it feels more like a duty of care for history and legacy mm. that that since i've picked it up and I, I've, I've come to realize the kind of i suppose the gravity of who Arthur Wharton was and the the kind of legacy that can be born out of it, that it seems more of a, an important thing for me to pick up on. Uh, yeah, I've tried to be diligent in everything I do, and I, I'm you know very kind of enthusiastic and passionate about the subject. An obsession. I mean, I you know I, I play music and I, I paint and I do all kinds of other things that could be interpreted as obsessions, you know. Yeah. But um, incorporating them all together. Um, to kind of celebrate Arthur is just an absolute honour and a privilege and it's a bit of a dream, you know, yeah. really, to having somewhere where I can apply all of my kind of artistic, mm. you know, leanings uh, mm. towards one subject and mm. uh, I really do enjoy it. Yes, because that's, I mean, you've, you've got this this sort of very varied background, artist, dancer, musician. So you, you are in a position, aren't you, I suppose, to be able to look back over your creative networks and... The sky's the limit, really, in terms of what you can do, who you can talk to, how you can collaborate with people. You've got this, you can use all of that to shine light on this incredibly important story, like you just said. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't know it at the time. Yeah, uh, yeah. It was more a case of, you know, let me champion this individual who's contributed so much and who was here at the very beginning of the Black Presence in Sport. And it just so happened that through the championing of Arthur Wharton and taking on, first of all, the campaign to honour him and then taking on the foundation to honour him, it became really apparent that, you know, I kind of, I did wrap myself in the comfort blanket of others in the sense that, you know, I got some celebrities and people more recognised than me involved because, you know, I'm, a, I'm nobody. Mm -hmm. And it's like, who's going to listen to me? So I managed to get other people that I found that, you know, the general public might engage with better mm -hmm. or they might listen to more, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And it's these kind of joining of dots that creates, if you like to use the word content, it's what it's what leads you to the content, right? Now, the thing is, once I started to establish that network, you're absolutely 
bang on the money. I was able to then utilize it in a way that gave me confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, it gave me a whole array of people that in the eventual kind of course of everything that I do, um, I know that I can join those dots and I can link those people together for the bigger picture, which I'm not out, we'll come on to a bit later mm-hmm. <laughs> in this conversation. But no, you're right on the money, uh, Sassy. You know, the, the idea of um, having uh, people around me and networks that can link together, they can do much more than I can mm. once it gets under their skin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and together, we just become really strong. Mm-hmm. And well, I'd like to think that we do, or there's certainly that impact that can that can happen. Mm-hmm. There is the unfortunate and downside of that, which is, of course, you know, these people are spread far and wide. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes, we have social media, we've mm-hmm. got the internet, we've got our telephones, etc. But there's nothing quite like being in the room with a person. Now, some of these people to be in a room with is... is <laughs> Quite tricky because they're in America or Ghana or Switzerland or Rome or something, you know. Um, and I, you know, I don't, I don't really do holidays for Arthur. Uh, so really, I have to be really patient and do things online, or they have to come here. That's interesting. You don't do holidays for Arthur. What do you mean for that? So you don't travel. You don't use him as an excuse to travel. Yeah, in a sense. I mean, there's all kinds of opportunities to take advantage of the kind of work I'm doing. Like, oh, let's go to Rome. Oh, yeah, let's go. And be- exactly. Get You're just taking the piss. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, it's got to be for the right reasons. Yeah. And this is why, when I think when we had our first conversation, it's why we have this saying: we don't do bling, we do the right I thing. I remember it well. I wrote it down. Yeah, it's a good, it's a great phrase. Um, you know, and it just reminds us: you keep your ego out of it. You, we don't do holidays for him. I had an opportunity to meet Usain Bolt, you know, years ago, oh, and um, one of the suggestions was that I go to Jamaica, and it was from that point where I said. I don't do holidays for Arthur. You with me? Uh-huh. It's kind of like, of course, I'd like to be in Jamaica in the sunshine with the palm trees and the reggae and everything else that Jamaica has to offer. But at the end of the day, um, doing the right thing would be to meet Usain Bolt in England, which, of course, I eventually did. Mm. And it's to get him to walk in Arthur's footsteps, you know, mm. to be on the very ground where where, where he played or to walk in, in the town where... So we're setting that up. Hopefully in the next couple of months, he'll be coming to Darlington, I hope. Excellent. And I suppose some content will come out of that. I mean... It's it's all about content. You see, for me, everything that I do, Sassy, and it was only actually, it's only when I did a talk for Salesforce in London Mm. where the word content became really apparent to me. Right, yeah. And it became apparent because a few years back, uh, the Chartered Institute of Public Relations uh, gave me a call, you know, and I was... I thought it was some kind of uh, pip company or some somebody trying to sell me something. So I was like, you know, nah, nah, I'm not interested, not interested. Oh, oh, we're not that company. We, we are the Chartered Institute of Public Relations. They, he said, you know, out of respect, they had to ring me and ask if I would be willing to accept an award for, for uh, Communicator of the Year, mm. uh, Northeast. And mm. uh, I was really flattered and honoured and couldn't yeah. tell anybody about it. It was supposed to be a surprise on the night and things like that. Yeah, and right. I went along and uh, I realised then that, you know, I, I was doing PR. And this is where the word content first came into my consciousness because they were the actual guy from uh, the Chartered Institute of Public Relations who, who you know, gave the kind of, um, I wouldn't call it a eulogy, but he gave the kind of opening address about me. He did a better job talking about me than I could have ever done. Yeah. The research he'd done was remarkable, reminding me of dates as I'm in this audience of things that had done and been and seen and things that had happened. And I was like, oh, my God, 
you know, these guys really do take their word, yeah. uh, take their work seriously. And then he started talking about the amount of content I've produced for, and, and I, I started realizing PR, content, joining the dots, making sure that you, everything eventually points to being in one room. And to be in that one room, that content has to have a purpose. That content is, to, is for cause and effect, effectively. You know, you want that content to, its output must be for the right reasons. That's the first thing. But it must be with also the right people. In doing that, and once you actually group that together and you get into that room that you've been knocking on for months or weeks, eventually you think, right, actually, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm actually, I would be negligent if I didn't tell you, Mr. FIFA, that you are negligent in not doing the right thing by one of your home. Mm. So here's some content for FIFA that you should use for your own purpose, you know, your own benefit, for the goodness of FIFA and for the reputation. And of course, they take that content, they put it on their, you know, their website, they put it in their mag. I've provided it all. I don't want anything back for it. What I want is for people to be aware of their responsibilities. When you are the, you know, the world's leading authority in the world of football, you have a, a duty of care and responsibility for the history and legacy of your own, not my own, your own. Here's some content. Would you like it? Oh, wow. Yeah, we'll use that. Now, as soon as I do that, that content then pricks their conscience. And every year I remind them, oh, it's Arthur Wharton's birthday. <laughs> Arthur Wharton died on this day so many years ago. And then they put something up on their social media. Yeah, amazing. So I'm providing them with content in that way. And then what I get back is, is the lovely brochure with the story of Arthur in from FIFA. That's, that's content that I then share with others come to face. And then people see the reality of that work. It's so nice, Sean, to hear. I'm going to remember that phrase you just said, the responsibility of it. Which, I mean, FIFA, a massive institution. But they need to be given the tools. And the content has to have a purpose, That's primarily. Right, yeah. Otherwise, why are you putting it out? Yeah. What is the purpose of that content? Yeah. In my world, the purpose is to raise awareness of Arthur Wharton. And through that awareness of Arthur Wharton, we learn about all the transferable elements of other discriminations and oppressions. You know? It's how we look at equality in a different way. So immediately, in researching Arthur Wharton and getting him under my skin, as you put it, what one quickly gets to realise is that you start reflecting back on why there is such ignorance in the world about a number of things. Four things primarily, right? There's, there's black and brown people, race. There's women. There's gender. There's LBTQ+. Actually, there's a fifth because there's also um, disability, right? Now, if we go back to the people in power today, they're roughly my age in all walks of life. The people with the most kind of influence in, right now, take yourself back to their schooling, to the curriculum. All of those people high on above, right? They learn about, because I'm one of that generation, we learn about the Normans, the Romans, the Saxons mm -hmm. and the bloody Vikings. Mm -hmm. We learn nothing at all about black and brown people, nothing. A tokenistic nod to a black person in a chain. But it was exactly the same for women. Where were the women pioneers, trailblazers, artists? You know, the, the, we had a tokenistic nod to Emily Pankhurst or Florence Nightingale. That's it. 
we never talked about disability in school. It wasn't an issue. No, people were afraid of discussing disability. And as for LGBTQ+, it was simply queer or gay. We never learned about those issues. So it's hardly surprising, is it, Sassy, that here we are on this podcast today, right, understanding, for example, that this is why women, LGBTQ+, disability, black and brown, we're all playing catch-up. The education and the awareness and, let's say, the positive identity of those groups has never been taught to the people in power now. They're just starting to get to grips with it. So it keeps me sane, thinking that uh, I'm more optimistic now. If you'd asked me 10, 15 years ago how optimistic I would be about, you know, tackling race and other issues of discrimination and oppression, I would have been very pessimistic. But the advent of social media and the massive kind of um, steps and leaps we've taken with social media, of course, it's it's a thing of ill as well. Mm-hmm. But actually, we're teaching outside of the curriculum on it. Yeah. So so what do you think it's going to be like in 50 years from now? You know, the rooms will be very different. The people in power will be very different. They'll have come from a more diverse upbringing, education. Well, you again, nail on the head. You know, it's the next generation coming through that will not have the excuses of the now generation. I feel optimistic that things will be better. However, there is a kind of counter to that. And that is that when, you know, as soon as we have to, as soon as it comes down to economics and the contrast of tighten its belt, immigration seems to become a massive issue. You know, they're taking what we've got type of mentality, right? As soon as you do that, you're dividing and separating groups of people. And actually what we really want is togetherness, isn't it? You know, the, the melting pot of people. You see, in the 1970s, it was literally the melting pot. So people like me, who are mixed race, felt a Quite comfortable, really. When we hike back to those days, what we see is a very clear picture of um, integration. Then in the 80s, social policymakers and and others started to talk about recognising difference, right? So I'm thinking, it's not very good for me as a mixed race, recognise difference. I'm kind of from these... and, And what they were saying was, you know, if you meet somebody who's, let's say, Nigerian... Take the time to ask them about their about culture. Their culture. Okay. About so, so good intentions. Very good intentions. Mm-hmm. But it, what it created, I found over the years, was this almost tribalistic thing. So you had your Nigerian support group, your Ghanaian support group, yeah, your Caribbean. And, and in within the Caribbean, you had your Jamaicans, your Bajans, your Kitty men, and so forth. Yeah. So and and so you you started talking about this because you were thinking about the new generations coming up and the fact that everybody is allowed a voice now. Um, yes. And yes, we hope that the that you know the people in power and the policymakers in fifty years have got this great, rich, diverse awareness behind them. But it might present its own problems. It might present tribalism. And- exactly. Exactly. I mean, we just don't know. But this new generation, what will their content be? What will it look like? In, in, what I mean by content in that regard is, you know, within, within, within any of us, when we pick up a campaign, a cause, a challenge in life, there is content associated with it, isn't there? It's, it, it's either for brands, it's the brand awareness kind of thing, right? And what they want to do is to kind of use people of influence in order to connect their brand to, so they can talk about the quality of their products, let's say. 
if you're talking about Nike or Adidas or Puma, you know, the real big names out there. And then we find that all these other kind of um, lesser companies are coming through trying to break that mold, but there's a real monopoly on it. Well, that's exactly what it's like with social comment mm. to mm. me. You know, it's exactly what it's like. When we talk about the FA, the Football Association, well, let's think of their content. Their content is games. It's preaching about, um, you know, respect for all in terms of uh, referees and in terms of uh, say no to racism. All, all good messages, but at which point do you then realise that you are complicit in the problem? Then what do you do with the content? I'll give you an example, right? Bulgaria, a few years ago. Um, horrendous uh, racial abuse to our young black men. So what the FA, they have a duty of care for the mental health and well-being. They bang this drum all the time. Well, if that's the case, how are they prepared to send these young black men back to that country? What do, what's the alternative? We send an all-white team. That's not going to work. So... So the FA basically said to me, or some people in the FA that I banged on about this stuff, said, Sean, what do you want us to do? I said, what I'd like you to do is to go back to UEFA, but before you do that, please consult with the Scottish FA, the Irish FA, Spanish, Italian, German, and give them a heads up on what you're about to propose or what you're about to ultimate to the FA, to UEFA, which is basically increase that fine to, I don't know, a million quid, and ban them from the competition until such times that it's safe for people to go back. You know, spend the next four years learning and educating your people about how wrong that kind of behaviour is. Make them feel a proper sanction. You know, there needs to be consequences. And unfortunately, when England, you know, I understand that they have sponsors and they have things like that, but... The day that that content from sponsors becomes more important than the health and well-being of footballers, then it is pointless. You've got to protect those individuals. And you see that part of the world, which is a beautiful part of the world, I have to say, the Eastern kind of block countries in terms of the countries, there's, there's not like a massive influx of black people. Mm, sure. Yeah. They are, you know, they are kind of slightly behind in terms of demographics and the mixing of communities. So there's a fair amount of, again, from me, and I don't like to say the word tolerance because I'm, but I have to be understanding of the reality. And the reality is there's work to be done there. Yes, yeah. So I know that there's a documentary in the works, isn't there, um, called Realising Arthur. The documentary, Realising Arthur, uh, basically that began by default, really. There was yeah. a couple of guys in BBCTs who interviewed me for a, a radio programme about um, Arthur Wharton and his time at Feetums. What's Feetums? It's F uh, Darlington's football ground, former football ground. Okay. So doing an interview anyway, the, it was, it was a, I really enjoyed the interview. I loved his questioning and we just seemed to hit it off. And he said, my God, I wish I filmed that. And I was like, I said, well, do you mind if we started just kind of filming stuff? And so this was about, I don't know, 10, 11 years ago. They, they've ended up following me around all those years. So they've been to Ghana with me, to Switzerland, uh, all over the place. You know, England Athletics Hall of Fame Awards, you name it. Statue unveiling, they've been there. They've filmed the whole thing. But they've also filmed a lot of stuff that people don't know about. 
And um, yes, the documentary is about Arthur Wharton. It also seems to be a little bit about me. I didn't really have the ego for that. I said, look, we had this deal. I'm going to just, I, I, I can't have anything to do with the editing or the, the the producing I can do in terms of joining dots for people, you know, bringing people together. But when it comes to the artistic and the presentation of it, it's got to be your bag because I don't want to be seen to have made a documentary about me. Mm-hmm. It just mm-hmm. doesn't sit right. Yeah. I'm not comfortable with that, yeah. you know. Yeah. <laughs> if they put something out there, I want to contest it if I need to contest it. But I don't want it to be my story. Yeah. That's really interesting, though, isn't it? How do you separate those two things? It, you know, causes need a mouthpiece, don't they? They need somebody at the front sort of waving the flags. So it's difficult. It is, but I haven't got, like I say, I, when I went, you know, I, I did manage to see some footage from it, let's say. Um, I saw one whole run of it when in its infancy when it was like a dry run of a, approximately what it might look like. There's a lot of me in it, and it's about the campaigning to get this job done. And it seems like a, an amalgamation of Arthur's story and my story and how it's come together. I've got no problem with that. We've taken the decision now that I can, uh, they want me, to, I, I need to produce it. You know, that is pure content. And the content in that, there are people who are no longer with us. I mean, God rest his soul, Cyril Regis, who was with me right from the beginning of this campaign, passed away. He says words in that documentary that nobody's ever heard. Um, so I want to now, I'm in a position now where I'm going to start to really produce it in terms of, let's see now what's the best platform to put it on. Let's see who can bring it to its power in terms of the finished product. You know, it needs to be done right. It needs to be um, complete. There's a little bits of animation, but I know the directors and those making the film, uh, Melting It Productions, I know I know they'd like to put some animation in there. Well, that will need funding. I know that there's one or two other updates since we ceased filming that now need to be put in. So it needs to be rejigged. Too important not to be in. Um, but there is there is a little film being made before that comes out. Um, we've just been commissioned, uh, Heritage Lottery just given us a small grant. Oh, congratulations, to, that's good. Thank you. It, just to employ the incredible Derek Griffiths, there's a company called uh, Broken Scar Productions. Uh, they made a short little film about Arthur many years ago. Uh, I'm just looking at the poster on the wall now. It's called Rise of the North Star. Okay. Cute little film. Um, actors uh, are local people. It's a really honest, lovely film. I, there's something about it I really liked. Step forward all these years later, and the same director, Mike Tweddle, lovely guy, said, look, let's do something else for Arthur. Now, the one thing is, Sassy, the, the thing is, we're always talking about Arthur as this handsome, athletic, trailblazing, pioneering, all positive stuff. He died a horrendous death, really. I said, I read that he died in in the workhouses. Is that right? He died in a sanatorium, you know. When he stopped playing sport, he went to work on the coal face. So he was literally on the coal face digging out coal. Now, imagine doing that at the end of achieving everything he has. You know, he died of cancer. He had syphilis. He, there's all kinds of illnesses that Arthur had, and his nose grew incredibly large and bulbous, and he, he died alone, mm. forgotten, mm. you know. Mm. 1998 then arrives, that's, you know, he died in 1930. And in 1997, I think it was, or was it 98, he eventually got a headstone. He laid in an unmarked grave all that time. Those last hours of Arthur, I want to capture them. 
so this short film we're about to make, it's only, it's going to be 15 to 20 minutes long. We've got the celebrated actor, Derek Griffiths. Now, Derek Griffiths is, is 70 something. Arthur died at the age of 65, but Derek is a very good 70 something. And he, he's got a resemblance to Arthur. <laughs> and he, he's got a character that I instinctively feel he can play. It's going to be this very short, 15 minute, 20 minute about those last hours of Arthur. But I, don't, I want it's going to be fairly bleak. Hopefully, we're going to have that out for some time, like end of spring. Right. And the, the Realising Arthur docu documentary, that's a different beast because it's so big. Arthur's reputation, his legacy. I have a duty. <laughs> we were talking about a duty of care for our players. I have a duty of care yeah. for Arthur's name. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And uh, actually, that reminds me, The I, I remember on the sort of preparation call for this podcast, um, we talked quite a lot about the Arthur Wharton statue, which you campaigned to have put in St George's Park outside the National Football Centre. And I think it's fair to say that was the kind of the beginning of the journey, wasn't it, in terms of your your content journey, I suppose, um, in terms of raising awareness about Arthur. So why don't we, as a final question, why don't we go right back to the top and just tell us a little bit about that statue and, and, and why it's so important. Uh, the statue is, when it was erected, it was, it was a symbol, a poignant symbol. It's there because it should have a purpose, which is a reminder to the FA and all of the great and the good, not to forget the beginning of the black presence in, in sport, because without Arthur, how do you measure it? It was 1883 when he first came to prominence in Darlington. This We are speaking in the 140th anniversary yeah. year. That's why at the moment I'm doing a lot of stuff and it all builds up to next October, so this is literally the 140th anniversary year. So how far have we come from Arthur to today in terms of black administrators in football? There aren't any. Les Ferdinand's just left his job. Um, how many black managers? We've still only got six or seven throughout all the divisions. How's that? There was four in all of the divisions when I erected that statue and I made a pledge that it's got to be there to do right. It's no good at the FA. That was 2014. It's nearly... It'll be 10 years ago. So they've only managed to get two other. Considering that 30, 40% of everybody who plays or some ridiculous figure like that is black or brown, and there's only, I don't know, 0.1% or whatever as managers. And it's crazy. It's madness. You know, our motto here is connecting the present to the past for the future. I like that. Yeah. Sean, we could talk for a several more hours I think about all this thank you for letting us be a part of this thread of content thank you so much for having me on this I've really enjoyed pleasure, pleasure. it and we will keep an eye on you and see what happens next I suppose in this thank you so much the responsibility of content I really like that I think as content producers, we can get carried away with trying to have you know, a presence in this tidal wave of information and data that's constantly being put out by everyone in the world. You know, we've got to keep up, we've got to stay relevant. So I think it's really good to check back in with the purpose of, of what you're putting out, you know, what the legacy is. And to be honest, I think that is something that we at Jano Media try to keep at the heart of everything we do. And we are here to talk to you about 
your content ideas, your legacy. So please don't hold back from contacting us. You can do so through the Jano Media website. And hopefully you'll check back in for the next episode of Signal. Bye for now. <laughs>